Good evening, everyone. It is 5 p.m. and this is Tuesday, November 17th, City Council Work Session for the City of Iowa City. And I welcome each of you tonight. I am just going to make sure that we have our counselors present. I am, oh, I see Councillor Taylor. I am not seeing our Mayor Pro Tem. I did send out a, a message just to make sure um, that she'll be joining, but we'll probably go ahead and get started today and then we'll try to continue to get in touch with her. All right, so the first thing on our agenda tonight is discuss goals and expectations for the 2021 affordable housing plan. And that is found in November 12th IP uh, information packet and that's IP3. And I'm gonna invite our city manager, Jeff Ruin, to kind of lead this discussion. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, it's good to see everybody tonight. Uh, so you'll recall at your November 2nd uh, work session, uh, you went ahead and directed staff to proceed with the development of the Affordable Housing Action Plan. Uh, we included that uh, memo, which just kind of outlines the process we intend to take with the plan development in your packet as well. So you, you have that refresher. Um, as we prepare to, to uh, kick this process off, probably in, in January, February, once uh, much of the budget is put to rest, um, it would be really helpful uh, tonight to, to have the council um, discuss your goals and expectations for the plan. So we have outlined uh, a, a few questions for you tonight and um, really just hoping that those qu uh, questions facilitate a discussion amongst the, the, the six or seven of you um, so that we can better understand what you'd like to see uh, with this plan. So I can go through these one at a time, um, but, but again, these are intended to, to try to spur discussion on a whole range of, of topics related to the plan. So feel free to take it in any direction you want. And uh, staff here, we're gonna uh, take some notes and then uh, we'll get, uh, get to work on uh, preparing for the plan kickoff. So the first question we have is, um, uh, some of you may recall that uh, um, in 2015, we did an updated market analysis uh, related to housing in the community. Uh, that was done by our MPO staff and largely uses um, publicly available data from the US Census. Uh, we expect some new data to be released in early 2019, probably January, but maybe February. Um, but we do wanna see if there's any specific background data that the council uh, wants to see with this effort. Um, depending on what you may want, uh, we may have to um, uh, hire a third party uh, to assist us in collecting uh, that data. So I'll, I'll start there and let you have that discussion. All right, counselors. So just jump right in there. Well, I'm going to ask a, a more general question um, that that uh, came across my mind in looking at trying to find other examples of uh, housing studies uh, that, for for my purposes, I, I thought might help me be able to respond some to some of these questions that we have for us. And and what it suggested to me, uh, one study in particular. Uh, was a study done in Bloomington, Indiana, 
Uh, it was just completed in July of this year, uh, so July of 2020, uh, a housing study. And the, in, in their case, the, um, the housing study was not limited to uh, lower income households. It was a look at the market as a whole. Uh, and certainly the low income households are critical focus of their study uh, because it was identified to be a uh, category of household type that was most in need of housing. Uh, but it really looked at all household incomes and the affordability, if you, if you want to describe it as that, for all households, regardless of where they fall within uh, their income bracket. Um, I was kind of intrigued with, with that. It seemed I know we've had many discussions, uh, this council and the previous council regarding other segments of the housing sector, whether it's the student housing. Uh, in particular, there's been lots of development uh, marketed for the students over the last several years, as well as considerable growth uh, all over Iowa City. And I know I've been feeling a little bit um, concerned about where are we in terms of our housing market. Uh, certainly the housing market as it relates to lower income households is a critical issue. But I, I felt that there might be some, some benefit to looking at that within a larger framework. Um, so I, I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, the study that uh, Wilmington undertook uh, involved, it did involve RDG, a consultant that Iowa City has worked with on both the bike master plan as well as the parks master plan. It was about a hundred page document. Um, but I, I did feel as we're moving forward, um, you know, I certainly have, I think obviously we all have concerns about affordable uh, housing for our low income households, but what about housing for those 55 and older? What about housing for uh, households that fall into the, say, the $45,000 to $70,000 income bracket. Um, I think these are all important questions, and I, I began to ask myself, as we move forward and look within, say, a 10-year window, uh, where are we with respect to all of those uh, areas of our housing market? So, um, you know, if we're to do that, it seemed like this would be the, the time to do it. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there. I mean, I really I appreciate you're doing that, John. I really I like the idea because I think it's important that we get a, a full picture of where people in the city sit. And there, um, you referred to the sort of 55 and older, but this, as 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 people get older, you know, either if they don't have extra income, they may also be struggling. If they if uh, and I mean, it's a valid, I mean, I it's a valid question. And I think that getting um, a holistic picture is useful. I wanted to acknowledge our Mayor Pro Tem has joined us. So welcome Mayor Pro Tem and also Ryan from USG is also here. We do have some questions before us, so um, if there is no more general comments before we kind of go through the questions for, um, I'll probably go ahead and get the questions started. 
we can start at number one um, and staff intends to update the 2015 market analysis as step one of the plan development. Are there any specific data sets, trends or forecasts that the city council would like to see as a part of this plan and effort? Some requests may ne necessitate third party assistance. So I, I guess, um, yeah, we'll just jump right in there. I, as far as like the third party assistance, I guess that uh, that'd be determined as we go through uh, some of the process and, and get staff feedback on what they feel they can handle and what we may need to uh, hire out. I guess I would just ask kind of a background question. It's certainly been a while since I've looked at that market analysis and newer counselors may not have seen it at all. Without going into too long an explanation, Jeff, can you could you give us kind of a brief summary of typically what would be in that market analysis when it's updated and if things that John's talking about are already part of that or would expand that from what it has typically been to help people understand it a little bit better? Yeah, um, you're, you're gonna get um, pretty high level census data, but you will get information on um, household income, uh, cost burden status, um, things, of, things of that nature. And so we'll be able to show some trends based on uh, past census data as well, um, which I think is, is pretty important, um, but you know what we were getting at, for example, would be if you wanted a, a kind of an analysis of, of rents um, uh, in, in Iowa City. Um, you know, we might have to I might have to look to for some assistance on that. Or so some counselors may recall a few years ago we did a, a housing study with the university and a consultant really drilled down into analyzing the student-oriented housing in and around Iowa City. Those are um, data sets that aren't necessarily um, readily available um, uh, and, and take some uh, 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 take some time essentially and, and in some cases surveying um, to, to gather that information. So I, I think um, I think for the most part, if I had to make some assumptions here, I think for the most part, council's probably going to be comfortable with the market analysis that's completed. Um, but again, we just wanted to make sure we weren't overlooking anything very specific you were, you were targeting. I think it would be good to, uh, John uh, mentioned, and then I believe um, Janice did also the, the senior population, because we all know that uh, it's we've got a very aging population very quickly and kind of see what proportion of, of those folks maybe. Uh, we have seen some new senior housing uh, developments, uh, but it would be good to know maybe what that need is or what maybe that's a future need we need to look at. Okay. All right. Uh, question number two. The plan will provide a high level look backward at the city's efforts to preserve and expand affordable housing since 2016. Are there any specific programs, projects, or policies that the city has pursued in recent years that the city council wants to study in greater detail? 
I think I can elaborate on this a little bit. So you've um, probably all seen uh, at some point in your uh, ten years on the council, some uh, reports from staff on number of households assisted at various um, income levels, uh, renter versus owner occupied. We kind of aggregate all our program data and and uh, give you some again high level statistics on on how our local dollars are making an impact. Um, and and we intend to update that with this uh, uh, with this plan. Um, but if there are specific programs that you really want kind of the finer level detail on, um, that would be helpful to know up front. We could we could expand upon our our our, our uh, case studies, if you will. I think it's a little too early to see what the partnership is between HACAP and I believe the Affordable Housing Coalition. Um, that is a part of the South District program that we've started, but I would be interested in um, maybe having that as a, kind, of, kind of a priority for how we're gonna continue. But again, that's in its infancy phases of us just trying to test that model out. So far, it seems to be a good, uh, a good partnership um, and having uh, that in the South District has been a positive as well and so for me, that would be one of the affordable housing projects that I would like to see moving forward. I think the, the question of uh, partnerships, I think, is a really important one. Uh, if we're going to um, accelerate the housing plan uh, with respect to affordability, uh, it seems like I would almost say it's essential that we develop further partnerships. Uh, and then also, you know, in looking backward, I think that provides an opportunity for really kind of evaluating where we've had successes with the work that we've done, um, perhaps where, where we're, you know, in effect, kind of a cost benefit analysis of um, you know, the work that we've been doing and seeing where we've had the most, most benefit uh, on, the, on the projects and policies that we've developed thus far. I'd be interested in, in taking a good look at Fee and Lou, not that we necessarily need more detail, um, but from a higher level policy standpoint, it seems like we talk about it every time, you know, we have a big development in terms of some level of discomfort of how it's used or, you know, the idea of it even and the benefits of having on-site instead. So, I mean, just making sure that that conversation happens, I guess, as part of the plan is important to me. I have to say that's important to me as well. Um, I've been very vocal about um, fee in lieu of, I, I also um, think that it is a greater conversation, but fee in lieu of for me, um, as I've mentioned in the past, um, it is not worth it. It's not worth the missing out on the experience of for people to live in whatever um, housing project is uh, being developed. And so whether that's student housing um, or just different housing in the downtown or uh, riverfront crossing area. So I, I would love to have that conversation. 
Thank you. I think um, kind of going along with what John said about cost and benefit, um, I'd be interested in maybe having a conversation about land banking. If I recall correctly, we maybe change that or de-emphasize that in an amendment to some of the allocation of, of funding. And so, um, you know, not necessarily needs to be a focus, but just making sure that we, you know, keep in mind that as an option. And to me, that seems like a really expensive option. And so just tying that in and that cost benefit question. All right. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure whether this applies to this question or one of the later questions, but I'd also like to take a look at the period of affordability and how long we believe we should maintain affordability in how in, in certain units or in housing because it seems to me that the that the current uh, period, at least for a place like Riverfront Crossings, is is too short. I think we've also had some discussion about the annexation policy, which requires that when it's annexed, that a certain percentage uh, has to be affordable if it's developed. So I'd, I'd kind of like to look further into that and see uh, how many of those areas have de been developed and what they have had for affordable housing and what they considered affordable. Okay, that's very helpful. It, it sounds... Uh... It sounds like we'll we'll probably end up doing a pretty detailed overview of each of the different programs and policies that we've provided. Um, I think we can do some good cost benefit and look at you know what the, what the cost per unit or the cost per unit per year is uh, when you factor in the affordability and and hopefully show you some of the the varying impacts across the community. All right, number three. A public input strategy with, will be developed by the steering committee. Are there any specific expectations that the city council has for this public input effort? Some strategies such as community-wide surveys may require third-party assistance and additional time. Yeah, this, this again, um, I think you're familiar with most of our community outreach uh, efforts that have been associated with master plans, whether it's climate action or parks and rec. Um, we just, uh, again, wanna make sure that if, if you had uh, something um, specific in mind that will require some preparation or maybe some expense that we're, we're uh, uh, preparing for that, uh, preparing for that step. So we use the community survey as one example. That would be a, an expense and a, and a timely, uh, a time consuming effort if, if that's what you wanna do. I think the model of the listening posts like we recently did with the police um, issue seemed to work well in you know going to different parts of the community and having sort of educational presentations along with the opportunity to get public input. I, I really like that idea and hopefully COVID might allow that in the spring. Yeah, it's a, lo a little bit hard for me to answer that one. I, I, um, it, it's something that I, my notes here are that uh, 
perhaps as the program begins to emerge and develop and articulate uh, a little bit further, I, I would have a better idea as to how you know, the, the public uh, engagement would be structured. But it's hard for me to comment on that one right now. When I thought about this question, I thought about some of our social service uh, agencies that deal with individuals that currently have a, uh, live in affordable housing or have a need for affordable housing. Maybe there could be some type of surveys that get filtered through them as well um, so that we can have uh, some input, more robust input, I guess. All right, number four, are you comfortable with the plan analyzing the impact and cost effectiveness of non-housing based solutions that could alleviate cost burden households or hold the plan focused solely on housing? I'm comfortable with it, including those things. I mean, we've had a little bit of discussion along that line. Um, you know, are there other things that we can do? Certainly as we look at, you know, retooling our transportation. We look at, um, you know, potentially expanding programs for those in need on utilities, et cetera. Um, I think it, those all, you know, those all affect how much people can reasonably afford in terms of housing. So, and sometimes particularly like with transportation, they really work together in terms of where that housing is located, where the jobs are. So I would very much support looking at things besides just the housing. Yeah, I, I, I spoke on this the last at our last um, conversation over this this study, and um, you know I mentioned at the time that uh, it seems to me it's really worthwhile looking at affordable housing uh, or housing in general for that matter again uh, as it relates to transportation. Uh, you know, estimates are that if you if you look at transportation and housing together, they, they consume perhaps 50% of household income. Uh, but one of the, the points that can be made, of course, is if you have affordable housing in a location uh, where there's good transportation alternatives, uh, it's possible to uh, dedicate more of your income, household income toward housing because your transportation costs go down. So there's, it, it's important in that regard as well, I feel, because it, it makes a clear link between housing and transportation and how important it is to coordinate it. Uh, if you don't coordinate it, you know, even though you may meet the 30% with respect to housing, your transportation costs may be much higher. So I think looking at them together is really uh, the most sensible way to do it. Okay. I agree on a holistic approach rather than just Housing. I think that's a good idea. I'm going to share the screen so that um, the questions can be right up before us and the public. I'm going to see if I, uh, all right. Can everybody see that now? Great. All right. Any other comments on that one? Number five, staff will project out future affordable housing revenue streams based on the current budget allocations. Does the city council want the plan to assume current funding levels or account for the possibility of new 
dedicated revenue sources. I would certainly like to consider uh, new dedicated revenue sources. Uh, I think we've, we, we've mentioned the idea of possibly including it in a local option sales tax. Uh, I, would, I would add to that the possibility of um, you know, general obligation bonds perhaps being a possible source of, of uh, revenue. Um, again, it kind of folds back to we, getting, we need to get a really clear understanding of what, you know, how many housing units are we short in terms of affordability? Uh, if we can try to get a better idea of what, what the financial need will be, uh, then I think that would help us understanding what, what the revenue sources required to meet that need will, will need to be. As we know, we're we're living in some really uncertain times right now. We're just not really sure where things are going to go, and uh, we know where. Oh, am I in there? And and uh, where the revenue sources would come. And I actually had some community members have talked to me about uh, a local auction sales tax, which surprised me because, as most of you that, that have been around a while know, uh, the community wasn't always in favor of that, but they're seeing it now as as a big. For, for revenue, particularly for affordable housing and, and childcare. So I, I would be in favor of that, looking at uh, alternate means. I certainly think it'd be necessary to look at other uh, revenue sources and the steering committee, I would hope that we'll have some people on there that could help identify some of those, as well as our talented staff, um, uh, looking into other sources that they may be aware of or reaching out to other communities or affordable housing uh, gurus throughout the states just to see what's out there. Really appreciated with our recent transportation plan proposal that there was the sort of cost bound recommendations and then if there's additional revenue, what could be added on top of that. So I don't know if that model is translatable, but I found that particularly helpful. Um, I think that's a great. I, I, yeah, go ahead, Janice. Sorry. So I I agree with Councilor Burgess. Also, one of the one of the great things about the way it was presented in the transportation study was, uh, here's what you have, and then here are the other things that this much that this much in funds would get you, with it either with having to, uh, in that case, it was having with with having to buy extra equipment or something. But it really, I thought it was a really useful model. I agree. Yeah, I would agree with that as well, because I think we all are very much aware that um, we could we could be really, really constrained going forward in our budgets, um, depending on how all this COVID stuff plays out. And so um, I think it's certainly good to account for the possibility, but we certainly have to be aware that one, there may not be that um, extra revenue and we may, I mean, I would hate to think, but we may not even be able to keep up the revenue stream that we've you know, the resources that we have given to affordable housing, depending on how all this shakes out. So I just, I wouldn't want a plan that came in as if we were gonna have all these additional revenue streams when we don't know anything for sure. So I like the way that you phrased it, uh, Laura. 
I think I like the way that Councilor Burgess phrased it because it be, uh, it really does begin with the end in mind. In my in my thought process, we think big and then we get down to a, um, maybe a few steps of what we can do right now, but ultimately having a goal to get to that big plan. So I, that's how I think about what uh, Councilor Burgess said. Number six, are there any uh, specific new programs, projects, or policies that the city council wants investigated with the development of this new plan? I'd like to see staff continue to look for changes that we can make to our zoning regulations that would allow perhaps for infill housing for duplexes, triplexes, or, or, or fourplexes in, in some areas where it's currently not allowed that could, that could cr uh, create opportunities in neighborhoods that don't currently exist. Yeah, what, what Janice just mentioned, I think was one of the missing, uh, it was, it, it's, it's in the current affordable housing action plan. We just haven't completed it. So I think that is an important an important piece moving forward. Um, others, and I, I would just reference that in the, uh, that Bloomington, Indiana plan, uh, it had a number, really a wide range of, of programs and policies that we might consider. Uh, certainly tax abatement would be one. Um, there was reference to small area tax increment financing. Uh, they're just uh, really, a whole lot of ideas out there that we we could be looking at, and and that particular study I thought did a good job of of, of reaching out and pulling a lot of those into their report. Okay. The final question is number seven. Are there other goals or expectations for the plan that staff should understand? I'll just mention a couple. Um, I'm trying to, for myself, what, what, what's the vision that I'm trying to, to um, articulate here? And I, I think in terms of timeline, um, I'd like, I personally would like to look at this as a 10-year plan. Um, so, so in terms of a time frame, you know, and making dramatic strides in terms of of meeting our affordability within that 10 year period. Uh, I also mentioned in the past, the idea of a, a tying our, our program for housing uh, in, in a neighborhood framework. Uh, I think it's important uh, you know, to, to acknowledge and differentiate uh, housing as it relates to different parts of Iowa City uh, so that there's a good match in that regard. If, if we do, as Janice had suggested, uh, look for infill opportunities, I think that really uh, to, to be successful with that kind of program, you need to have a much better understanding of the neighborhood context. Um, and also that housing doesn't exist in isolation. There, there are important considerations that can come into play when you put it within a neighborhood framework. Um, 
obviously transportation would be one of those pieces. Uh, but you could also be looking at, at other ways that you could improve the quality of life uh, as you as you address the the affordable housing piece as well. I add one more thing, which is I don't I don't think I think we need to be careful not to to make sure that we're not leaving students out of the equation. Uh, and one of the ideas that I had mulled over during actually during the campaign, like a, year, a little over a year ago, was trying to figure out how to marry up people who would like to stay in their houses, for example, seniors who are who really may not be able to do all the heavy lifting um, and maintenance on their own with um, with students who could or or other or young families or someone who could really um, live in a live in a portion of the house for reduced rent in exchange for for um, for certain services. So I don't know if that's if that's a realistic approach, but there are there are different ways to make housing work and make it affordable. I'd be interested in, in us establishing some metrics on which to track our success. I mean, my I think especially with the action plan, it was like, you know, we want to get these programs underway and accomplish these, you know, some very discrete, concrete things. Um, I, it'd be great, like with the climate action plan, right? We have a goal relating to our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, are there goals that we can set relating to how we measure affordable housing and, and what is um, the proportion of families and individuals who are cost burden in, in the community? I mean, that kind of thing that we can push towards starting with that end in mind and be able to kind of track our progress. All right. Well, Jeff, I, you feel like you have enough? <laughs> yes, I, I appreciate it. That was very, very helpful and will help us get off to a good start with this. So again, just from a time frame standpoint, um, we'll, we'll do some behind the scenes work as staff over the next month and a half. Not, not a whole lot, um, but we'll try to, we'll try to get this uh, really kicked off and moving pretty good in January or early February. Great, thank you. All right, COVID-19 updates. So we do know that our governor on the 16th, which um, that was yesterday, um, gave some new uh, mandates. Um, so I might, I'll just open it up for now. I mean, I, we've, We've said it all multiple times, but the situation is really serious. The situation is the most serious, I believe, that it's been since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, hospitals are full or, or at capacity or nearly at capacity. I believe UIHC is now basically adding uh, intensive care beds and shifting staff around. The So, I mean, if you're not wearing a face covering all the time, staying home when you can, social distancing and all the rest. If you haven't been doing that, this is the time to start doing it. We don't need our health system to collapse. We need everyone to be part of the solution right now. Um, what the phrase that I've been using is public health isn't a popularity contest. It really is public health and it's a life or death matter. 
I felt that I, I got more out of our joint entities meeting and the Think Iowa webinar that was a couple of days before that as far as information about, you know, what's going on out there in the state. Uh, it was very helpful to hear from the professionals that are out there uh, dealing with this, the head of the hospital and um, uh, Sam Jarvis from Department of Public Health. Um, so I, I, it's still not really clear to me what the governor was trying to say as far as how what the extent of a mask mandate was as such um, and uh, confused about the 10 o'clock closing time and the numbers that can be inside versus outside and I'm just afraid that a lot of people still are very confused about those those uh, uh, recommendations yeah I, I have to agree that it you know the governor's orders were a little confusing and so um, I personally won't even try to share what those were tonight because I feel like you really have to read the order and dissect it to really understand um, who, who's, who's affected by the order, who's exempt from the order um, per line item. Um, you know, the indoor gatherings of 15 or more people um, you know, how that's prohibited and, and, and the outside gatherings of 30 or more people. So I, I would encourage people really to go to the governor's website and look at the order um, themselves because it, and, and bring your notepad um, in order for you to be successful at adhering to all the things that um, has been ordered. Well, and certainly our local mask mandate is still in place. And I mean, Jeff, maybe if you can just remind people, um, I think I, I seem to recall, like, for example, for, for bars, um, if there's reporting that's different than, than what we're asking people to report, or maybe just go over how to report if there's an issue or concern um, with noncompliance. Sure. Um, yes, the, uh, what we're asking folks to do is to, to contact our police department uh, non-emergency number. And I'm not quick enough to pull that up and it's not committed to memory, but it is 319-356-6800. Uh, That's again, the non-emergency number. And we will dispatch an officer uh, to, to investigate uh, uh, the concern. Yeah, I would I just add that in, in case there's any doubt that this is serious, the senior senator from Iowa has now tested COVID positive as has a new representative. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so we, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, and, and I would like to say again that, that masks are effective in reducing the spread of COVID, uh, but there are additional measures uh, that are equally important. I, I, I was thinking about today and I, I kind of like to uh, compare it to like making a cake and you get all the ingredients, but you don't get, you don't have the flour in there. So it's just not the same. So you need all the ingredients because they're all important. And, and the one that kind of stands out to me that people forget, seem to forget is to avoid touching your face. Um, carry a little hand sanitizer with you because you, you, you just don't even realize the number of surfaces that you touch, uh, doorknobs, door handles, the keypads on a, an ATM, uh, keypads on the uh, card uh, chargers at, at the grocery stores, et cetera, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, uh, then you reach up and uh, touch your face or touch your mask. And it's really important to avoid that, uh, to avoid your eyes and your nose and your mouth. 
and, and use hand sanitizer when you, you aren't able to wash your hands with soap and water. And I, I think it's worth emphasizing um, just that we, we do know how the disease spreads and we know so much more than we did in the spring. In the spring, we were very afraid, right? We didn't, we didn't know what would be all the modes of, of transmission and having a much better understanding of how much more dangerous indoors is than outdoors and being able to apply that, knowing that right now there's a lot of spread in, in households, a lot of spread in small family groups. Um, and that, you know, please don't make that exception, right? Can limit your contact to those who are in your household and know that just that one time of having a few people over or just that one time of being indoors, not wearing a mask um, when you're with others really is what's causing a lot of spread right now, according to our public health experts. So just, you know, be consistent. It, it isn't a mystery, right? It may be hard, it may be inconvenient, it may be frustrating, but we know how. So I think we can take hope in that and really just apply for ourselves that consistency because we also know that a vaccine should be on the way. And if we can really buckle down for a few months, I mean, light at the end of the tunnel is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So now we know masks all the time indoors and keeping your distance. And like uh, Pauline said, that um, hand uh, hygiene as well. All right, we are going to move on and we're going to go to uh, Black Lives Matter movement and systemic racism. Um, any, I know that today is going to be a, a day where we talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where we'll be having that discussion in our formal meeting tonight at 7 p.m. Uh, we'll be making those appointments. And so I would um, recommend that people um, definitely save any of that conversation for the 7 p.m. meeting. Other than that, um, any updates anyone would like to share on, 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 this, on this item? I know that we went through last meeting and uh, line by line, just to give an update where we were. Um, and it seemed like you, you were continuing with the affordable housing uh, conversation and plan, the uh, reconciliation, Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission is gonna be today. And um, I think we are definitely on track at covering, um, keeping on track with some things and we'll have a discussion about the Juneteenth as well um, a little later. And Mary, I can just a, a quick update on just what's changed in the last couple of weeks in the report. Um, one, you're, you're considering your legislative priorities tonight. Um, so so um, based on our work session discussion that we had on November 2nd, I assume those will be adopted and move forward. Um, at your last um, meeting uh, we took from the council discussion that that part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, task is going to be uh, really looking into the um, uh, the artistic expression um, uh, part of the, the resolution so we will note that as part of the uh, the task for that uh, for that new commission 
And then the uh, the Juneteenth holiday, um, we'll be uh, announcing uh, this this Thursday. Um, that does not require any council action, but we'll be updating the council in your weekly information packet this Thursday. So that's where uh, the bulk of the progress was. And um, of course, staff is continuing to work uh, 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 very hard on the uh, preliminary plan that we'll present to you at your December 15th work session. Great. I also don't want to. I don't. I don't want to overlook the um, your, your um, CPRB is is working hard too on their uh, on their piece of this, and I expect that they'll have their um, recommendations and thoughts to you uh, in in the coming month as well. So uh, it's not just uh, staff that's working on this. You've got uh, commissions and and uh, parts of the community that are also um, working on this uh, on this report as well. Great. All right, thank you. Any other updates or comments? Clarification of agenda items. Okay, we're going to move on to info packet discussions and we'll start with the November 5th info packet and then we'll uh, slowly move down to November 12th, but start with the November 5th. I just wanted to call people's attention to the racial equity report card. I thought there was a lot of useful information in there, and the trend, what the the some some are positive, some not quite so positive. But basically, the transparency is really um, the key, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I did have a, a question on that. There was some reporting, um, I think it was in the DI this week, that was kind of highlighting the percentage increase in um, uh, certain charges, uh, this would be criminal charges by race. And so I just wanted to get clarification kind of publicly on um, if that's because we're using gross numbers for that. So overall number of stops or charges increases or is it proportionate? I'm not sure I've, I'm following that. Can you repeat that? Sure, so I'm looking in the info packet, it's on page six of the, the PDF, the actual um, racial equity report card, for example, has um, traffic stops by race and ethnicity. Um, and so there's between 2015 and 2019, the number of, um, for example, traffic stops of black or African-American individuals was up by 36%. And so as I did the math, that looks like the gross number, not as a percentage of population. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so I think it might be helpful. I, I believe we track that in our 
um, the study that's done annually um, and, and do that as a proportion of overall population. But I just wanted to make sure that we weren't, I, I felt like it was a little misleading, not misleading, but just maybe is leaving that piece of the picture out that if by population or by percentage of population, those stops are going down, that's what we want to see. That's what we want to celebrate. And so um, just wanted to highlight that increase is um, not proportionate. Yeah, and just as a reminder, um, the uh, traffic stop data that we present uh, annually um, uses um, uh, observations as the baseline. So we don't even use the, the census population, but we, um, the um, St. Ambrose University that does that for us actually um, does physical observations of the driving public. Um, and that's the baseline because there's, there's uh, um, uh, different makeups of, of the driving public in different locations in town. So when we study that disproportionality, we really get to a finer level of detail compared to, to what you see here on the, on the racial equity report card. This is meant to be kind of high level transparency. It's really meant to for for you and for the public to ask more questions and and you know uh, what do you see here that needs more explanation? How can we provide you that data? We know that traffic stops is a is a great point of focus and has been for the the council for some time and that's why we typically uh, dedicate a work session to that topic alone every year. All right. I did want to mention in that in that um, packet as well. Um, you will have seen the um, update from the Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County, and just accounting for how they're using our funds. I think it's really encouraging as um, they look at some of the projects in the queue that they've funded. You can see those right there, just to see that there's a number of different affordable housing projects kind of in the hopper, um, waiting to waiting to uh, um, happen over the next month or so. Um, and, and clearly our dollars are making an impact and helping those move forward. All right, IP, well, November 12th information packet. And I know that um, we'll discuss the IP6, so maybe we'll start there. Um, because many things in this IP we've already discussed. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Mayor. We um, uh, wanted to get this in front of you for uh, just some direction, make sure you're comfortable with this. But uh, um, uh, as you know, uh, we have not, uh, we, we suspended water shutoffs uh, uh, at the onset uh, of the COVID pandemic. Um, in this memo, we provided you an update on um, what the past due situation looks like. And I think when Dennis chimes in, he'll have some updated numbers. Um, but what we're seeing is some really rapid growth in, in those past due numbers. Um, at the time the memo was written, you know, just in the last um, uh, month, we had seen uh, over $120,000 in new past due, new, new past due funds. Um, we're working hard to connect our residents uh, with the state utility relief program and the local local relief programs that, that you all have funded and that we've received some federal dollars for. Um, but we really need to uh, we really need to think about how we're going to 
um, uh, emerge from this in a in a very sensitive way with the public, and that's really what the staff has has tried to do here is to is to think about how we move forward. Um, we're obviously not wanting to shut off anybody's water uh, during the pandemic. Um, we want to connect folks with resources and and make sure that they're assisted in all way possible. Um, but we also have to we also have to run the water utility and make sure that we have. Um, uh, the funds to continue to support that critical operation that we uh, that we do. So, um, what we're suggesting here is that um, uh, as of February first of next year, um, we take all those past due amounts and we focus on on developing payment plans for those past due amounts, and then those won't those won't impact any water water shutoff decisions going forward. So, I kind of think of that as kind of the COVID balance. And then uh, looking ahead, we kind of we start fresh, um, and we're really intentional about how we're trying to work with our with our customers um, to make sure that they know about the low income discount program, to make sure that they know about any other resources that are out there for utility relief, and uh, and and hopefully um, get them uh, in a more stable situation to which uh, um, they can uh, keep up with the. Uh, utility payments going forward. And then the other key piece of this is the water rate increase that we had scheduled for this uh, past July, which the mayor has delayed a couple of times with his emergency orders. Uh, we'd like to suggest that uh, that be delayed uh, again till uh, next July, which would make it a full year's delay. Um, so uh, Dennis uh, can chime in with some updated numbers if, if you have them, Dennis, uh, uh, anything I missed, you can you can fill in, but again, just looking for some counsel, your your level of comfort with this plan, um, uh, so that we can be uh, prepared and and uh, uh, kind of proactive in working with our our water customers. Um, I can add that we did start to implement portions of this in October, where uh, we did send out letters. Um, we did expand the low income discount program. And as we start making efforts to uh, connect people to those resources uh, at, the, at the Centers for Workers Justice, the community and the shelter house, as well as the state. Um, and, and we try to get the word out there to, to get that assistance to people. Um, and through those efforts over the past uh, six weeks or so, um, the number of Austin accounts has dropped from 1,096 to 850. And the dollar amount owed has dropped from 293,000 to 256,000. So we have some seen some improvements in those outstanding balances and uh, and exiting the amounts uh, that are owed. Uh, we did meet as a group, uh, the public works director, the uh, water uh, utility management staff, the utility building management staff and myself to talk about Kind of prudent ways that we could uh, help customers um, and then try and return to normal operations and we we try to take a, uh, a little bit of a longer range view to really target kind of the end of the fiscal year to try and um, really get things back to normal and and this is the program that we came up with um, so it, it really actually tries to provide that assistance where it is necessary and uh, fortunately, like the state did offer a program that, that fits in well to this program. And 
And uh, uh, I guess I can just uh, try and answer whatever questions you have if you read through there as far as uh, how it'll work and what we intend to do. I have questions related to the changes uh, implemented in, in March 2020. So number three, um, so I understand that the city discontinued filing liens against delinquent properties and transferring uncollected amounts to the city's contract contracted collection agency. Um, do you know, because I think one of the future steps uh, that is being suggested is that we would transfer this back to the to uh, Valley Collection Services. Mm -hmm. Do you know if when it goes to them, if that becomes a part of their credit um, as being delinquent? Um, we did have that conversation and it does not. Uh, Valley Collection Services really is not, uh, well, I'd say it's a hardcore collection agency. Um, what they do is, is more soft type collections and, and they really offer a wide range of collection services. And we can really dictate of, of how we want them to do that. And that would include, you know, mostly like setting up payment plans, which we're, we really don't have the software or the staff to, to manage a thousand payment plans where they do. Um, so they can set payment plans. They can keep it off people's credit. Um, they can do all sorts of things that you wouldn't uh, associate normally with a, a collection agency. Uh, they're really more of a, a service business that would be managing these receivables for us. And so we can dictate to what level we want those collections to be. And right now the conversations have been about really just setting up payment plans, making those connections, and in handling the collection of those balances. So if this was to go to the collections entity, um, what will be our efforts at sharing some of the assistance programs um, with these individuals that have these late payments? Well, right now we're trying to, I mean, we have sent two rounds of letters to everybody with the past due balance. And we're also making phone calls to everybody that has a past due balance. Um, we've also, also issued press releases and put on our website. And so we're really making a lot of efforts to, to connect with everybody that has an outstanding balance to, to hook them up with the state program or one of the city programs um, for them to be able to take care of those balances. And so, uh, there would really not be anybody on this list that hasn't been contacted several times uh, or at least attempted to in a number of different ways prior to the, that they would ever go to a third party. And really the 